0: All right. Well, we are in this series of teaching about um, beholding God's glory and seeing God for who He really is. And we've been looking kind of in the Old Testament about some misconceptions that we had about God and trying to correct some of those. And for the next few weeks, I'm going to be dealing with something that's pretty technical. Actually, next week, I may just talk about the conference that I was at because it was really powerful. I thought about doing it this week, but I... I got home Friday and I just didn't feel like I had enough time to put together my thoughts. I thought it would be not very articulate. So I'm going to sit on it for a week and then I'll kind of share. But I've been wanting to do this for a little bit. I, I want to talk to you about some views that we have from God, about God that are pretty widely accepted and have made it into a lot of our theology. But it's interesting, um, these views did not originate from the Bible. And what happened is that there uh, were these Greek philosophers like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and so forth. And uh, they're really smart guys. And, you know, a lot of Western civilization and Western thought is built upon um, the Judeo-Christian value system plus some stuff Aristotle said. So it's not like I'm mad at Aristotle. In college, I studied... um, Rhetoric and I love I used to teach syllogisms and stuff. If you don't know what that is, count yourself lucky, but I, uh, <laughs> I enjoyed it. So I'm not uh, mad at those guys, but th- the interesting thing is that these Greek philosophers, they were, they were pagans, and their gods were people like Zeus and Athena and Aphrodite and, and so forth. And they they didn't grow up in a context like we do where you're reading the Bible and you're thinking about Jehovah and Jehovah's God and all this. Their gods were very petty and very capricious and they acted very much like humans. And they basically treated humans like pawns in this sort of grand game that they were involved in. Anybody read it or remember, maybe you've seen the movie, uh, The Iliad or The Odyssey and, and those sorts of stories And, you know, the the gods would demand terrible things. Agamemnon, who had to go over, he was going to go over and try to battle Troy. So he couldn't get the wind to work. So he took his daughter, and he offered his daughter as a sacrifice to some god, and that shifted the wind. And then he was able to go to to Troy and uh, do battle there. And he comes back in the sequel. Aeschylus uh, wrote a sequel called Agamemnon. He comes home, and his wife is still upset about the deal, and she says, hey, honey, come take a bath. I know you've been gone for years. You know, it's hard. You ought to take a break. And so he goes and takes a bath in there, and then she gets some kind of heavy metal, heavy object and and brains him, just kills him in the bathtub. It's awful. (laughs) It's an awful story, all right? And so, so... (laughs) <laughs> this, is the, this is the context that these philosophers grew up you know, thinking about gods and the way that they deal with humanity. And, and they looked at that, and they said the philosophers were very serious people and they, very intelligent, and they thought, you know, these, these gods over here that we've read about in Homer and whatever, that's, if there's a real God, he's probably not like that. Now, we can all probably say amen to that, Right. right. And and so what they did was they came up with ideas about God, not in a vacuum, but in in response to these silliness of the Greek gods, and they said, you know, if God is real, if there's a real God, then he can't be like these people, he's got to be like something else. And they they came up with uh, three ideas about God, which... um, actually made their way into Christian thought. And these were adopted by Augustine, who was a major Plato fan. And before he was saved, he he loved Greek philosophy. And he sort of integrated these, these things. Now, just because it originated in Greek philosophy doesn't necessarily mean that all these things are wrong. In fact, I think the last one is probably right. But... It is interesting to note that that these things didn't come from the Bible originally, or come from Christianity originally. They came from outside that, and people believed them. And then they read in they they already believed certain things about God, and then they looked in the Bible and tried to find evidence that that was true, which is not a good way to read the Bible. Uh, You don't want to read it with preconceived notions about who God is. You want the Bible to determine who you believe God to be. Can everybody say amen to that? So they had these three ideas about God. The first one was that God is impassable. And the the word there they're talking about is the word passion. Anybody heard of the passion of the Christ? And in Greek thought and ancient language, that actually meant the ability to suffer. So they were saying God can't suffer, God can't have emotions, basically. And the reason that they were concerned about the idea that God God can't have emotions because Zeus and Athena and Aphrodite, those people have emotions and it caused them to behave in really petty and and silly ways. Does that make sense? And so so they said, if there's a real God, he's not like those people, he must not feel anything because feeling stuff would pervert his justice... And cause him to make poor decisions. That's how they thought about it. Secondly, they said God is immutable. God cannot change. Now certainly the Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But when they said this, what they meant basically is that God is an immovable force. And nothing ever affects God. Nothing. He only affects other people, but nothing affects him back. He's never changed by his creation in any way. And then they went on and they said, not only that, but God is timeless. He must be outside of time. Uh, I listed those in order that I agree with the least. (laughs) So... um, I disagree strongly with with A, Uh, B I sort of agree with, and C is super complicated and probably beyond my ability to understand, so it's probably right. I don't know whether or not I'll actually talk about it because it's so complicated, but, um, but I do want to talk about the first two. So starting with Augustine, these views were assimilated into Christian thought, and challenging them, it, it is, it's not like I'm saying that Orthodox Christianity is wrong or anything like this, but these are pretty serious concepts. They're not, they're not in the creeds or anything like that, but huge portions of, of Christianity really strongly believe these concepts, and so to discuss them like this, it's pretty, it's pretty serious business, um, but that's kind of what we do here, so whatever. Anyway. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to offer a critique and a discussion of each of these views. I'm not necessarily rebutting all of them. And we kind of have to approach these things with humility because it's pretty intense. But why do you even bother challenging it? Well, here's the, here's the reason. If I, if I believe, first of all, that Jesus and that God are, are impassable, then what I've got to do is, how many of you know there's lots of scriptures that talk about God feeling stuff? There's tons of them. And Jesus felt lots of stuff. If I accept the impassibility of God, I've got to look at those scriptures and I've got to say, well, that's just us projecting onto God something that he doesn't really feel. It's us trying to understand God, but it's not really who he is. In other words, the God in the Bible, that's not really God. That's what we end up saying. This stu- he doesn't, you know, sure God gets angry, but he doesn't really get angry. Sure God loves you, but, but I mean not really because he's this faceless, impersonal force back there somewhere. Similarly, if we believe that God uh, can't ever change his mind, then all these interactions that he has with humanity, what they are, they're, they're games. They're him manipulating people rather than in interacting in a real back and forth with his creation. And the timeless one is difficult, but Jesus lived in time while he was here. He actually grew up. And the way that theology typically resolves this is to say that you know, there's two parts of Jesus, which there are. There is divinity and humanity. And what we say is, well, Jesus' humanity suffered, his humanity changed and his humanity was in time, but none of his divinity was. Which again, begins to paint this picture in your heart which says, Jesus is great, but he's not the real God. Because the real God is somewhere that you can't reach and can't see and can't understand. Well, this is pretty intense. So I want to try to talk you through some of these things. I'm going to deal with this impassibility thing first, and then we'll talk about the immutability of God later. So, before we get into, like, what I believe about it, why is it bad in classical thought for God to have emotions and be able to suffer? Well, I already talked about one reason, but one reason is they were scared that if God had emotions that it would pervert his justice and it would make him make poor decisions. The Stoics, they were like early Vulcans. Anybody remember Spock and and start. I was a trekkie growing up, and the you know the Vulcans they thought that the way to the way to in, have extreme knowledge is to is to purge yourself of all emotion. Don't feel anything. Feelings are bad. Reason is good. This is how the Greeks thought, and they actually I mean they they were real serious about this. You know they wanted to they, you know Stoic. Whatever happens, I could be in intense pain. You know, and and I don't. You just don't ever show anything. And there's a typo in here. But they argued that God, who is the highest good and most just, if he's got to be just and good, then he's got to be entirely free from emotion. That was the way they thought because of of their Greek philosophy. But you, you can't find that in the Bible. Secondly, they feared that if God had emotions, then he might... He might have an emotional reaction to something that's going on down here which might cause him to intervene. (laughs) He might, I don't know, do something crazy like be so disturbed by the plight of his creation that he might might actually step off the throne and become a person (laughs) and come down here and save us. He might... You know, if God has emotions and he feels things and he loves people profoundly, he might end up in a conversation with his mom at a wedding. And they might run out of of wine and his and his mom might say, Jesus, can you fix this? And he might say, Well, that's not the plan of God. It's not my time. I love you, mom, but it's not my time. And Mary says, would you do it anyway for me? (laughs) And and, and we might actually serve a God that that is so moved by his relationship with his mom that he changes the eternal plan of God and says, all right, (laughs) let's go for it. Let's make some wine. Yeah. <laughs> so if you, have, if you have the impassibility of God, it leads into the immutability of God. But if God feels stuff, it might change him. Uh-huh. If God opens himself up to his creation, then what we've got is not some controlling, domineering force that looks more like the Force in Star Wars than the Father. And instead, we've got a back-and-forth relationship with a real person. And that relationship's dynamic, and it's changing based on feedback from you. And then the last analogy that I heard, the stuff I'm teaching you, somebody accused, oh, that's some pop theology nowadays, and it is becoming more popular. But the way they refuted it was, if God can and does suffer, then how can he possibly save us? And the analogy they used was, how can one drowning man save another? It's a good question. I'll come back to that. Well, let's just read what the Bible has to say about the emotions of God. Look at Psalm 78, verses 58 and 59. It's up on the screen. It says, For they provoked him to anger with their high places, and they moved him to jealousy with their graven images. All right. So you have two options when you read this. You can take it literally and believe that God was genuinely angry about the fact that his people were in idolatry and that he was, he was jealous, not in a controlling, bad husband kind of way, but in a loving father kind of way where you don't want your kids to do something stupid. Or you can say, well, God doesn't ever really feel anything, so this is an anthropomorphism, and, and it's, it's, you know, it might look like God's angry, but he's not really because this is God in heaven. And he doesn't ever respond to humanity. He just, he just does stuff, whatever he feels like. Well, if you didn't have a preconceived notion, it seems pretty obvious that he actually feels this stuff. Let's read some more verses. Zephaniah 3.17 actually says that he rejoices over you with singing. He rejoices over thee with joy. The Hebrew there talks about God doing like an ecstatic dance and twirling around in heaven. Well, is that real or not? Is the Bible true or not? Is God up in heaven dancing when, when one sinner comes home? Or is he some dispassionate force? What I'm arguing is that he's a real person that you can have a real relationship with, and he actually feels the stuff. Hebrews 1.9 says that Jesus has been anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. I've got, I've got good news. Jesus is happy. <laughs> God's happy. He's in a good mood. He's not, he's not just pretending to be in a good mood or saying, you know, I'm sure his emotions are far beyond what we experience, but they're real. They're really intense. I've experienced them personally. I've felt the emotion of God in my heart for people. I've felt the compassion of God in my heart for people. It's so intense. It's, I was praying for a guy um, Thursday, and I, I just I, he started weeping really strongly, and I felt the compassion of God for him, and I started to just weep, and we both fell over on these stairs, and I was, I was just sobbing. And it was really intense. I'm like, Jesus, I didn't really sign up for this. I'm tired. Because <laughs> I just prayed for like 50 people. <laughs> but but we were laying and we were laying on these steps and it was really uncomfortable. We were like in a ball. It was it wasn't it wasn't pretty. That's a good word. Yes. To God it was. To Jesus it was. I don't care I don't care how it looks to other people. Right. <laughs> but Jesus is happy. He actually has joy. Hebrews 4:15. Let's read this one. This is a powerful one. It says, For we don't have a high priest which can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In the Greek, let me read this to you. The Greek word, I didn't write the word down, it was hard to say. But the Greek word, therefore, infirmities, says to be affected with the same feelings as another. What's that mean? It means we don't have a God who can't feel what you're going through. We don't have a God who can't feel your pain. We don't have a God who can't feel your joy. We don't have a God who's so far away from you and seated up so high that he has no conception of what life is like down here. In fact, he came down here in a physical form to become like us. And the Bible says he he keeps all our tears in a bottle. We don't have a God who can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. It's directly refuting the impassibility of God. It's saying this isn't who God is. He's not some impersonal, dispassionate force. He's Father. Matthew 14, 14. Is Jesus God? I believe he is. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with what? compassion towards them, and he healed their sick. As I read the Bible, God's primary motivation for doing things seems to be passion, compassion for people. And it's not always, (laughs) it doesn't always make sense. It's not always, it's not always pretty and, and, and organized and all this stuff. It's, you know, one day he's out, I think it's this story, he's out ministering, actually the, the, the uh, Herod kills John the Baptist and Jesus tries to get away from people to pray for a little bit. And he's up on a mountain and all these people flood around him. It's not really part of the plan. He's trying to take a break. But it says he's moved with compassion and he teaches him many things. And then the disciples get tired. They say, Jesus, send the people away. They need to eat. And Jesus says, they don't need to go away. You give him something to eat. Yeah. And he stays and he, and he heals him. He, he continually colors outside the lines. <laughs> these these uh, people, Gentiles would come to him. His ministry was supposed to be to the Jews. He was trying to deal with the Jews. It wasn't time for Gentiles to be healed yet. <laughs> but they said, please. Please. Who who is this person? He's amazing. We were created in God's image, Genesis 126. He said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. It's reasonable to assume that part of that means that God gave you emotions and that those came from him. Is that reasonable? Yes. What can we conclude from all this? Well, I believe that God possesses real emotions. Uh, these don't pervert his sense of justice, rather, they animate and drive his desire for it. Isaiah 9 7 says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. He's talking about salvation. God's always just. But he's empowered and driven by these powerful emotions that are on the inside of him. Now they're higher than ours. They're not, they're not, they're much purer. He doesn't ever get, you know, he doesn't ever have a bad day. He doesn't get depressed. Father doesn't look at Jesus and say, you know, I, oh, I feel pretty bad today. You know. <laughs> they're, they're, they're different, okay, but they're real. He yeah. says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this, will accomplish it. What's that teach us? teaches us this. Your emotions are not evil. The solution is not to become Spock. Right. <laughs> now, I know that sometimes your emotions run amok. Anybody's emotions ever let them do something stupid? Sure. Sure they have. But what's the solution? It's not to shut them down. Sometimes our reason, sometimes our brain hurts us. We reason ourselves out of faith. But does that mean you just turn your brain off and you never think about anything? No. What you're supposed to do, Romans 12, 2 says, you're supposed to renew your mind. Don't get rid of your thinking. Think right. Similarly, don't get rid of your emotions. Let them be healed. I was praying to God about this and I was just thinking about this picture and, and I'm, I'm thinking, God, this is so intense. I mean, what, you, what you're saying is that you've, you've made yourself vulnerable to your creation. You've, you've opened yourself up and, and you really feel things for us. And, and, and what about that question, God, how can, if you, if you feel so intense and, and you suffer with us and you know what our pain's like, how can, how can you, Save us. How can one drowning man save another? And God God said, son, that's not what it is. I'm a dad. And I've been on the throne. And I've been watching my kids. And they've fallen into this icy water. And it's killing them. And so what I did... As I dove headlong into the water, and he, and he wrapped his arms around us. He was, he was compelled by the compassion in here, by his love for his kids. And he, and he grabbed us and, and pulled us out of the water. And we thrashed and we kicked. <laughs> and we rebelled. And we said, who's grabbing us? What's going on? But all the while, the arms of the Father were lifting us up and saving us. That's the real picture, guys. That's what it is. It's it's not. There's a legal aspect to your salvation, certainly. But why did He do it? Because He loves you. <laughs> in, a, in a really, in a really, reckless way. <laughs> and it's okay that we use that word. It's, it's, not, it's not saying anything bad about God. It's saying without regard for the personal cost. Yep. Yeah. Jesus, Jesus didn't count the personal cost. He just came. So let's all stand up. If I could get the music. What I want to do is I want to pray for people. Now if my prayer team could come down here. Um, I believe, like I said, today's going to be a day for emotional healing. If you're changed, here's the whole principle, all right? This is the reason I teach this. You're changed as you behold who God is. If you believe that God doesn't have any emotions, yours can't ever be healed. I'll say that again, because I didn't get any amens. (laughs) If you believe that God doesn't have any emotions, you can't look at them. And if you can't look at them, you can't ever be healed. Thank you. Okay, all right. All right. I'm going to pray for everybody, but I would encourage you, if you need some kind of emotional healing to come down here and pray with one of my prayer ministers, you can tell them what's going on. You don't have to, but there's an anointing down here to to break this stuff off of people. Now, if you need something else, come too. If you need, but, but anyway, I want to pray for that. I think it's going to be special. Molly and I will be right down here. We'd love to meet you if you're new. We can pray for people too. But anyway, I'm going to pray for everybody. And then if you need personal prayer, you come down. Father, help us to get the picture right. Help us to see clearly who you are. Help us to see your passion, your love, your zeal for people. And I just release healing this morning. Let let people's emotions be renewed. Let them see you clearly for who you are. I thank you for doing this this morning and bringing breakthrough into our lives. We just love you. We receive in Jesus' name. Amen. We love you. You guys have a great week. If you need personal prayer, come down here.